Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, December 22nd, 2020. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So the uh, the stimulus package, uh, the coronavirus relief package is, I guess, headed for reconciliation and then off to the president's desk as part of a general omnibus spending bill. And uh, I assume it's going to be signed, although, you, you know, you can never tell um, with the occupant of the Oval Office. Um, one thing I wanted to highlight is uh, we talked about the, you know, general major features of, of the bill um, is uh, that it, it, it features an interesting uh, grant or relief for people that uh, under ordinary circumstances, I myself would not be supportive of any federal relief for, uh, which are arts venues, um, meaning theaters, rock clubs, museums, uh, the cultural, the largely nonprofit cultural sector of the United States, um, uh, with some profit, with you know profit rendering things like movie theaters and Broadway theaters and those theaters, but but largely this money because you need to um, you need to have lost fifty percent of your your twenty five percent of your revenue. Uh, those that have lost more than ninety percent will be able to apply first within the first two weeks. Uh, grants capped at ten million dollars and. Um, uh, in a slightly New York centric way, uh, this is vitally important because in, in New York City, anyway, you're really talking about an extinction level event for dozens of cultural institutions that that you know, through no fault of their own and through no nothing they could do, <clears throat> lost their entire revenue streams and are you know sitting there still having to pay rent and things like that, and you know uh, try to employ people. Um, and, uh, and so what object, so I think, and it, this is all around the country, you know, there's clubs in Minneapolis, there are theater companies in small towns in Minnesota and Utah and Oregon and places like that. <clears throat> Almost everybody in this business has political views that I revile. Um, nonetheless, uh, like every, like a, this is, this is an extinction level event, uh, everything that happened to them is through no fault of their own. This is not because their audiences went away or they, you know, they got too woke or anything like that. Um, Abe, what do you what do you make of it? Well, yeah, I mean, tempting though it is, I, I'm I'm not I don't favor putting people with political view, views I revile um, out of business permanently. So um, sure, I'm I'm I think it's um, I think it's valuable and. Um, not only do we need such things, e- even when they are irritants and um, um, frustrating and maddening, but um, these places and and these industries do, in fact, employ Americans. And um, in that sense, they're no different uh, from 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 any from any other industry. We should say that they employ Americans, and they have, unlike a lot of other businesses. I mean. They have very serious ancillary effects on other businesses. 
restaurants, you know, bars, things that uh, things that are associated with them. Uh, that you know, if if entire neighborhoods where there are sort of arts programs and things like that get get kind of shut down, um, that has catastrophic ancillary effects. One of the reasons that uh, cities and states often invest in helping these institutions grow is that they have positive consequences on the neighborhoods they're in, in terms of small business help and employment and all of that. Well, and for the ones that are nonprofits, this year is very tough for fundraising for a lot of these institutions, which often do their, especially for the smaller arts and thinking of the smaller theater and music groups. Um, I mean, here in DC, we, the, their fundraising efforts are usually in-person events, special concerts, special talks, things that you can go to pay a kind of slightly, uh, uh, increased ticket price for, which is in fact a, a donation to the institution. And now they have to rely like everybody else on kind of virtual efforts to bring in money. And that's going to be really tough, especially because many of their uh, bigger donors this year might not be giving at the same level that they that they did in previous years. So I actually, I agree. I think it's something that to keep arts communities thriving, regardless of their output uh, uh, and, and political views is, is a good thing. Noah, you have any, you have any take on this? No, <laughs> it's all good. This is important. It's months, it's months too late. And the whole objective of uh, paycheck protection philosophy, much less the legislation, is to keep people employed and to keep them off the unemployment rolls and to reduce the strain on the on the public coffers to say nothing of the social burden associated with uh, indolence. So, yes, you know, whatever you can do. And this is the bare minimum of what you can do, then yes, it's valuable. This is, again, this was imposed on people. This is not a natural condition. None of this was was something that, you know, there would, maybe not in New York City where people wouldn't go to the theaters amid a pandemic, but in the rest of the country, you could probably have kept movie theaters open and people would patronize them to the, to the detriment of public health. So closing them, entertainment venues, was a necessary public response to the pandemic. And a necessary public response to the pandemic also involves keeping the, the safety net in place. Well, and I think, the, you know, the, if you're if you're concerned, the, the fiscally responsible conservative part of my brain, the, what, what I read in the in the new relief bill and, and same in the old that is concerning is what we're going to see in terms of political rhetoric uh a couple a year or so from now this is supposed to be temporary so for example on the rent uh forgiveness rent forgiveness is supposed to be part is part of this package uh distributed by state and local governments and it's supposed to be temporary but i can guarantee you that the you know the sort of progressive wing of the democratic party will start to argue they already argue that housing is a human right and you know rent is horrible and capitalistic and terrible and you will see this temporary payment used as a justification for making some of these extremely expensive programs permanent. So that's, I think, what we need to keep our eye on going forward. Right. I mean, the whole point about, uh, I mean, I I am philosophically opposed to direct government interventions in the arts, uh, because I do not believe that it is good for government to sponsor uh, arts and specific artists and things like that, because then you do get into the bizarre uh, feature in which we are somehow privileging certain forms of art over other forms of art, um, and and you get the you get the situation in which taxpayer dollars and money are often being used to fund things that are uh, morally noxious to uh, a great many people in the country, one way or the other. You can almost say, you know, it's like if you don't like uh, piss Christ. 
You also might not like the Gene Autry Museum. Uh, you know, it's, you know, you can't, uh, or, you know, some museum dedicated to George, you know, to General Custer. Um, and, and it's best for the government to be entirely out of this. Uh, I do think that there's a slight difference in policy terms when individual states or localities decide that it is in their interest to do things to deregulate so that arts institutions and things like that can get, can gain purchase in neglected neighborhoods or troubled places or stuff like that to encourage the creation of a, you know, a, a, to a sort of creative industry that uh, otherwise would not necessarily locate there. But that's also not federal. That tends to be state and local. I will say this, which is that this country is as is uniquely generous to arts institutions. People are constantly saying, "Oh, what about England? Has all this you know support for the National Theater and for the BBC? And this is so terrible that we don't do stuff like this." That is like insane balderdash this country and i don't mean by i don't mean at, at the governmental level i mean at the individual elemosinary f- uh, philanthropic level has been extraordinarily generous to the arts and to arts institutions and to you know patronizing so that uh you know there are way more symphonies way more opera companies way more opera house, way more venues than than uh, than a lot of places would have because the, because this country produces a great many wealthy people uh, because of our capitalistic system that has made it possible for people to thrive and to thrive in all 50 states and in different ways and to for them to make so much money that they want to give back to their communities and they give back in this way. And now we have $15 billion coming from the federal government as part of this package. And uh, the more these people walk around saying that the United States is based in racism and monstrous, ex- you know, exclusion and is such a terrible, horrible place, I'm going to use the phrase that I often like to use: "They can all drop dead because they are, they are, they are performing, they are existing, they are thriving because of America's capitalistic culture that has allowed." wealthy people to turn around and give their money to them so that they can produce what they produce. They can drop dead. Gratitude, the lack of gratitude about the, about the United States and its philanthropic generosity at all levels as expressed by all kinds of nonprofit left-wing groups is nauseating in the extreme. They can drop dead, but we don't want to see them put out of work. Right. I'm saying they can drop dead. They can drop dead in a, of course, in a metaphorical, metaphorically kind of, speaking, yeah. always. <laughs> but there is a an artist, a producer of a certain vintage who no longer regards art for art's sake as a valuable enterprise. That art must be a utilitarian form, just like everything else, and it must advance a particular project. And so they're not all that jazzed about the idea of expression for its own sake and pure artistic freedom. Licensing the thing, reining it in, isn't such an isn't such a, uh, a, a undesirable thing if your ideal is less freedom and more safety. Well, in the if you recall going back to some of the sort of uh, 
anti-racist stuff that, you know, Ibram Kendi and others have proposed, they see a role for the government in monitoring uh, any money that goes to the arts based on what the arts are producing. That's this idea of a department of anti-racism is all encompassing. It's not just looking at the budget. It's looking at where, you know, anywhere money goes. That includes places like the Smithsonian, which had a little mini anti-racism scandal in its depiction of whiteness. You, I think Noah's absolutely right that this isn't, this is, will always be politicized. So us saying, you know, regardless of your beliefs, we, we want to support the arts in general. That's becoming more and more radical of you in a weird way, given the, the, the shifting political priorities of the arts community. Absolutely. And, you know, just to, just to step back a little bit, um, the history of Broadway, the future of Broadway, for example, is the subject of the conversation that I had with one of today's sponsors, uh, post Corona with Dan Senor, the new podcast that you can get on, uh, wherever podcasts are, are, are downloadable from, you know, the, uh, the Apple store or Stitcher, iTunes, wherever, um, uh, Dan Senor, a contributor to commentary, uh, and a, uh, you know, important American businessman, author of Startup Nation, the book about Israel, uh, one of the best, uh, and most cogent interviewers you'll ever hear. He and I had a conversation. It's the latest of his uh, podcast in this new podcast realm post Corona, which is dedicated to the subject of how what America is going to look like when we get out of the virus in in all kinds of fields. So he had this fantastic interview a couple of weeks ago with uh, with Billy Bean, uh, the Moneyball, the subject of Moneyball about the future of sports, not just in the United States but but worldwide. That had some eye opening details about wildly popular sports that you have never heard of that have insane followings on social media and w- how they might start moving to the fore as some of these other sports face kind of existential crises. Uh, One thing I learned from this is that the average age of a baseball fan is 69. So uh, how, how long baseball can survive with an average uh, following of 69 is sort of an interesting question. Um, uh, He had a a fantastic conversation about the future of New York city with uh, Nicole Gelinas and Rehan Salam of the Manhattan Institute. Um, and a bunch of other uh, people really, really worth listening to. So post-corona, uh, the new podcast, go to the iTunes store, go to Stitcher. You really will thank me uh, for this one. Um, so we started talking about this yesterday, and I wanted to really give some time and space to this topic. Um, the world of... Uh, the left's uh, re- response or approach to sort of crime, criminality, incarceration, all of that have become a, obviously a major political issue this year uh, in two ways. One of which is, of course, it triggered the summer riots and the uh, agitation and unrest. And then uh, the presumption uh, on the part of liberals and the left that uh, a Rubicon had been crossed and that the American public was suddenly very, very much willing to listen to radical ideas about what to do about American crime control. And then came the November elections, and it seemed very clear that whatever data people were using to assume that the public had moved in that direction was horribly flawed. Because as I said yesterday, 
27 toss-up races for the House, all 27 of them went to the Republicans. And the Republicans and the Democrats alike attribute the lion's share of this to defunding the police and socialism, which don't necessarily sound like they're connected, but they are connected. We don't have to really get into that. Um, nonetheless, in the world of liberal opinion, uh, left, left-wing left opinion, let's say, not liberal opinion, things continue onward in this direction. And um, we are looking at a significant body of elite opinion that is getting more and more radical about the notion that the way that people are punished for their transgressions um, in the United States is fundamentally unjust, needs to be changed, and needs to move in a direction of greater compassion, support, and solicitude for people who commit criminal acts. Uh, Christine, uh, we could talk about the specific things, but so like we have... uh, Politicians. So, Christine, we have at least two politicians, Muriel Bowser and Ayanna Presley, pushing right. on some of this. So, the, the the most recent example from the past few from the past week are uh, leaders like Muriel Bowser, the mayor of DC, and Ayanna Presley, House Representative, member of the squad, arguing that we should not we should push uh, convicted felons uh, prisoners to the front of the line for COVID vaccination. Um, and I find this to be one of those really interesting uh, litmus tests. Uh, if you throw that out there, uh, to, people will give you an instant reaction. It's either, of course, they're so vulnerable, we must help them. Or, oh, my God, how is that possibly reasonable? How, why should people who've broken the social compact by committing crimes be pushed to the front of the line? So it's, it is a very stark example of this much broader phenomenon. We see it in local governments, you know, particularly the Pacific Northwest, places like Portland and Seattle, actually decriminalizing crime, saying, you know what, if you if you rob or you steal or you, you know, simple assaults, things that actually in the criminal code are considered uh, misdemeanors or uh, serious misdemeanors in some cases, they just eliminated this. These aren't crimes anymore, in part because they can't effectively police it, but also because of this notion that, you know, we feel bad for the people doing this. They have some problem that society has failed the criminal. This is kind of the mindset. And it used to be fringy on the left. um, And you've and I want to separate that in particular from the the kind of thoughtful efforts to reform the criminal justice system, right? To make sentencing fair, as we saw with the war on drugs, brought really unfair uh, penalties for crack versus powder cocaine. And, you know, things like that are, are legitimate. You can get a lot of broad uh, appeal for them among the public and among lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. That's not what we're talking about. That era has passed. And in fact, the fact that both uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris downplayed or completely ignored their own records on criminal justice in this recent election shows you how much that era is gone. They deliberately avoided their own tough on crime uh, records because that wasn't appealing to their coalition. So I think we have in small bore things like these vaccination decisions, but in a, on a broad scale, it is this sympathy for the criminal. The criminal becomes the victim and the actual victims of crime disappear from this narrative. We see it happening in neighborhoods where the most vulnerable children, the elderly, there was just a terrible drive-by shooting in Chicago, which the, the bullet penetrated someone's house and killed a, a grandmother who was just in her home. Um, those victims disappear. Uh, they don't exist in this narrative because they complicate this issue of, you know, society's failed the criminal. That is a point that really needs to be emphasized is the distinctions between decriminalization and the political effort to um, seek common sense 
criminal justice reform efforts, uh, you know, treatment for uh, nonviolent drug offenders as opposed to incarceration, um, sentencing guideline reforms, increasing judicial discretion, judicial review, that sort of thing. Um, that argument won. It was largely an argument proffered by the left, and they made a sympathetic and compelling case that Republicans who, and there is tension still within the conservative and Republican movement about this issue, but it largely, that argument largely won and it culminated in the 2017 um, uh, First Step Act, which was crafted and uh, passed by a Republican-led Congress and signed by a Republican president. And as the progressive movement has made these victories, they become sort of a, a victim of their own success because having won, now they need to find new ground to take. And that effort has led them in a direction that is entirely hostile towards the enterprise of criminal justice itself. Just about every facet of criminal justice itself is under attack. And it only makes sense insofar as you have this ideology that regards just about every institution and convention um, that was that gave rise, or what the United States gave rise to, as being tainted because it is a product of a tainted nation, of a nation that is steeped in racism and racial injustice, right. and therefore all of its conventions, traditions, and institutions are sus- are similarly suspect. Where where Christine and and no, where you both uh, highlight the successes of new conversations about criminal justice reform has to do with the word justice. In other words, what. Where there is common ground is this notion that justice is being applied unequally. For example, crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine. Um, Sentences that seem uniquely harsh uh, in weird ways uh, because the sentencing guidelines that were passed 25, 30 years ago um, admit of no, don't allow for discretion. Um, and and even stuff like the criminalization of things that weren't necessarily criminal before so that we have new categories of kind of felonies and misdemeanors of things that would have been civil offenses at a different time or the be or the militarization of 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 policing where cops do things that they probably shouldn't do and the asset forfeiture and all of that comes to the justice system is doing things in a way that are on the, are, are that a common sense tells everybody it doesn't make sense that it doesn't make sense to put someone in jail for for th- three times as long for using cocaine that's cut with baking soda or you know how however you make crack versus versus powder um, that kind of thing like and everybody can go hmm that's a you know that's kind of a good point or you know uh, even 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 the decriminalization of marijuana comes to the point of like. Really, is pot that bad? Is it really so bad that people who sell it should go to jail for 20 years? You know, that kind of thing. That's not what we're talking about here. So that that is where you can find common ground. Then you get into the question of people of whom there is no question that they have committed crimes and that those crimes are offensive, again, to the commonsensical moral frame in which we all live. Then you get advocates for them. That's where the conversation starts to take a very peculiar turn. Um, And that's why I wanted to mention these two op-eds that appeared in the New York Times within a day of each other, Um, which is interesting because it's, A, it's the New York Times. So therefore it is the, you know, it's the summit of elite conventional liberal opinion. 
And obviously, this would be on the minds of the editors of the New York Times. One of them is by a sort of a, a, a monthly columnist. But I assume that she doesn't necessarily have entirely her pick of topic if she's a monthly columnist. I'm not sure how that works. But the other is a, you know, an op-ed that's sent in that they, that they choose to publish. The first was by Elizabeth Brunig, the monthly columnist, um, and she, where she goes and attends an execution in Ohio. The other uh, is about an execution in, um, I'm sorry, I'm not sure what state, uh, of a woman named Lisa Montgomery, the first woman to be executed uh, on on federal death row in 70 years. Um, and both of these are pieces about the in- fundamental injustice being done to the person who, is, who has been put to death. Uh, in both of these cases, by the way, we're talking about a period of 10 to 20 years between the commission mm-hmm. of the crime and the execution since the process of getting to the death penalty is so involved in the United States with every possible avenue of appeal and sympathy and all that being having to go through and then possibly a final, you know, uh, somebody commuting the sentence in the, in the, in the final, at the final moment who doesn't do it like president Trump. Um, and these case, both these pieces, uh, Brunig's pieces about what, what it's like to watch an execution. Uh, the piece uh, by Rachel Louise Snyder about the execution of Lisa Montgomery is just about her life and her crime and about how terrible her life was and how monstrously she was raised and sexually abused and all of that. Uh, and the, uh, the other case about uh, uh, Alfred Bourgeois, uh, again, talks about the horrors of, his, of what, what was done to him uh, and how terrible it is, and both these pieces stipulate that they committed the crimes that they are uh, that they are accused of. Though in the case of Alfred Bourgeois, Elizabeth Brunick raises a doubt about one aspect of it, uh, but that they killed people is no question. And then the issue here is what Lisa Montgomery did was that she took a woman, she strangled her. And she took a knife or whatever and cut her belly open and took her unborn child out of her stomach and kidnapped her and took her, drove her a thousand miles to Texas back to her husband. Uh, And is this crime for which she was, uh, she was, the death penalty was, you know, assigned. Uh, In the case of Alfred Bourgeois, he took his two-year-old daughter and bashed her head against the dashboard of his car. The open question to Elizabeth Brunig is whether he raped her before he dashed her head against the dashboard of his car. But that he dashed a two-year-old's head against the dashboard of a car is not in dispute. So these pieces are published to make the case that the death penalty is unsound and immoral. Um. I want to talk about why you would publish why you would publish these pieces are if you stipulate the crime, which is intellectually honest, then where are you? I can understand how you where you are if you are a, a, a very serious person a, a opponent of the death penalty in the sense that you say the state should never should not have this power or um or you are, you know, uh, 
somebody whose religion says, you know, without question that the state should not put anyone to death. Otherwise, where are we? I, I'm, I'm sort of laying out, I'm sort of laying the table out with these two pieces in the New York Times that represent, I think, cutting edge opinion. Death penalty is very controversial, always has been, although not in the United States that much. Like, Two-thirds of the, of the American people, as far as I can tell, pretty consistently support the imposition of death penalty, which is the only penalty mentioned in the Constitution of the United States so, for treason. You know, so, so sometimes those numbers go – like there's a, there's a way to um, look at the uh, public opinion on uh, the death penalty that says that um, the abolition of capital punishment is, is gaining ground. But that's if you ask in general terms. You see, if you, if you ask specifically – for example, like I remember this from, you know, 10 years or so ago. Um, well, should if a terrorist uh, uh, attacks American citizens, should they be put to death? Yes. Overwhelming majority of, 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 of Americans say yes. So it's there's a, a cons- sort of in the abstract, a lot of people, a lot of Americans will say, yes, it's a bad thing. Um, then when you get to a specific uh, crime. That, that they find is beyond the pale. They're, they're absolutely fine. Well, I'm looking directly at Gallup, which has been polling this issue since 1940. You couldn't have a more consistent uh, poll. And the question is very specific. Are you in favor of the death penalty for a person convicted of murder? Now, presently, it is 55% support, 43% oppose. But the direction is moving in toward oppose. In 1996, 80% supported death penalty for a person convicted of murder to 16% opposed. And the direction has been moving steadily um, in one, in one way. So it's, it, it's not as clear cut as that I, I suspect. And I generally, it's, it's and generally John, based on your, your own stipulations that there's, if there's a moral conviction at work here in Elizabeth Bruning's case, there is a moral conviction at work here. She's not being disingenuous. She's not a she's an, she's an well, idiot. Neither, neither is Rachel Lee Snyder. There is a moral conviction at work here. I'm in agreement with that, but I think Abe's point addresses your point, Noah, which is that as a general principle, now it's a 55-43 issue right. or whatever. I was saying sort of two-thirds, one-third. Uh, maybe, I mean, there are other polls that would say that, um, but not in specific. Like if you went out to the American people and said, Louise Montgomery took a woman, strangled her, cut her belly open, took an eight-month-old, you know, an eight, a gestating eight-month-old baby out of her stomach to kidnap her, to take her as her own, to bring her back to her husband who wanted another child. Should that person be put to death? I, my guess is you're at 80%. Right. In other words, you only really have people who say you cannot have the death penalty under any moral circumstances. But it is an argumentum ad passionis. It's, it's it's a logical fallacy right. to appeal to emotion. We don't I, make policy based I on do not. In fact, I don't agree with that, but we can get to that because I think a revulsion, moral revulsion at specific particular acts is, in fact, at the root of criminal justice. And, and our criminal uh, di- well, in our system, sorry to interrupt, but our system is designed to treat each case individually. We don't take a group of murderers and throw them before a jury and say, well, this guy shot someone, this woman, this person strangled a woman. That each right, case- which is, pres- but, but that's precisely why the statute doesn't def- define 
individual criminal acts as being, you know, with that save broad categories. It doesn't say, well, there's this, if, if you bashed a child, two year old's child's head, that, that should have its own statute and this should have its own statute. I mean, the statutes are clear. Right. But we have degrees. Right. And, and I mean, I, I keep, I keep thinking, I keep coming back to the Dukakis debate question, right? When he was asked about would he support a death penalty sentence for someone who killed his own wife? And that was, you know, his answer moral his moral conviction was the death penalty is wrong he said no it cost him i mean it cost him votes because people could not believe that a man i mean now some people admired him for that because they shared his conviction but i do think that the there's also the there's the slippery slope problem right so if you eliminate the death penalty then what is the most egregious sentence you can give a person for the most egregious crimes it becomes life in prison um, and then everything beyond that is also adjusted in kind and you could get to the point especially if you're decriminalizing misdemeanors that are quality of life issues for people you're going to get to a point where the criminal justice system is is rather treating criminal behavior in general with, with with kinder gentler approach and you might you can make an argument for that but in a violent country like the US that's going to have consequences hey but there well I'm, well I'm just wondering though if, if the this the nature of the new anti-law enforcement movement has much to do with the kind of arguments where we're given. I mean, the, 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 the New York times um, column uh, articles are one thing. And I think that is, that is making an honest argument about um, the, the ability of a state to put a citizen to death. And I think Noah's right that if, if you make that kind of argument, you want, you want to, you want to give it the best counter argument you can to, to sort of, uh, you know, make your case, but I think the kind of stuff that we're seeing in the uh, in the in the activist um, uh, part of the left today isn't really about the traditional arguments about um, uh, uh, having the right to put people to death because we're talking about groups and people who are not anti-violence. They want to abolish prisons, right? right. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's where you get to the the meat of the argument. If you, and Abe's absolutely right. If you scratch one of these people enough. And, you, you know, is there a penalty that's worse than, worse than death? Arguably, yes, that would be solitary confinement, administrative segregation. And administrative segregation is psychologically torment, is, 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 is torturous. I mean, there's a lot of people who believe that that should be eliminated, too. And there should be, you know, just general, uh, general population as opposed to segregated populations or particularly solitary populations. And then once you scratch that a little bit further, you get to, well, there shouldn't be general populations either. Right. Well, the reason I'm sorry, the other thing about solitary, a lot of the people who are put in solitary or segregated from the rest of the population are done to protect the rest of the prison population. These are extremely dangerous prisoners. Entirely protecting other prisoners by segregation. But that is that is entirely the point of 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 that. And again, it's where you start where you start where your moral frame begins is the idea that you focus on an individual case for good or ill, and in the case of, say, Lisa Montgomery, as I say, this piece by Rachel Louise Snyder says, she was raised, she was repeatedly abused as a child, she was sexually abused, she told people nobody did anything, and, you know, she basically went psychotic uh, as a result of it, and so this was the uh, end result of that, and that this life history should have been mitigating, that she did not know right from wrong, and she didn't know how to behave, and and, and and all of that. And so what you have is this, you know, you turn this intense camera focus on the criminal who committed the crime and say, look at the horrible life that she led. 
Why are we doing this to her? And in doing that, and this was what happened in the 60s and 70s and 80s with liberal attitudes about criminality that were so disastrous and ruinous to American liberalism that you zoom in on the state condition and life and circumstances of the criminal and you blot out the victim. You blot out the victim because in the end, the only reason that the criminal is in the criminal justice system is that the criminal committed a crime against somebody else who was permanently affected either by being killed or being victimized or being and not just them, of course, which is the most important thing about murder is you if you murder somebody, you're not just killing them. You are sinking their families and everybody who knew them into a lifelong, agonizing loss that isn't like the loss from a disease or something like that. It is a, it is like having a nail sticking into your foot that ne- is, can never be released. And every time you step, this thing happened, this monstrous injustice happened to somebody. And as I say, when you're talking about how people thought about this, back during the crime wave of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, this was a big thing in sort of liberal criminal justice circles. And it was one of the ways in which conservatives got political, um, what would you call it, like purchase in the United States was by saying, why aren't these people talking about us? We're living in a wash in crime and all they talk about is how terrible it is for the criminal, not for the victim. And then we got victim impact statements in court that weren't ex- extant before and all that. Abe, I'm oh, sorry. So what's, the way this is taking shape today is cuts to the core of um, – this is a fundamental idea in leftism and socialism from like the 19th century. There was – you know, I, I read uh, – reread the uh, – uh, crime and punishment a few months ago. And there's this t- whole discussion about um, how society, an unjust society, makes the criminal. That is the mm-hmm. argument um, being here. And that is right. that is that was the radical argument on the left then. And it is it is the it is the same now. That is an incredibly interesting because I also reread Crime and Punishment this year. And of course the interesting thing about Crime and Punishment, if you haven't read it for many years or if you haven't read it at all, is that it's the portrait of a millennial, basically a Russian millennial. Raskolnikov Raskolnikov. is a a young intellectual. He's a writer. He writes essays for like a, like a hot new jazzy website. That's right. (laughs) Um, And, and has interesting theories about criminals and criminality. And it's Dostoevsky's point that the obsession with these theories together with very specific things that are going on with him, he's very sick. He's got a terrible fever and his moral sense is incapacitated in part. It's not that he just like goes evil, like all sorts of stuff is going on. But much of the first third of the novel is taken up with these conversations that he had with his intellectual friends and with the guy who was investigating the murder that he commits about what justice is and all of this. And Raskolnikov is very intelligent and he's very thoughtful. And he is, and he is read very deeply, and uh, and and this is not Dostoevsky in the classic realm of people who take things with deadly seriousness allows him to argue at the highest possible level for the view that he holds, 
in order in part to discredit it morally, spiritually, and, 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 and finally as, as, as the ultimate act of godless nihilism, that you kill someone just to see if you can get away with it, right? And so that's not what's going on in these, in these pieces, obviously, but it, but it tells you, yeah, that this is an ongoing conversation about justice, injustice, and that somehow there is a tradition on the secular left – which is not where Elizabeth Brunig is because she's a serious Catholic, but there's a tradition on the left of focusing on the idea that the criminal class knows something about society that other people don't know. And of course, Dostoevsky's first great book was about people who were unjust, many people who were unjustly imprisoned, House of the Dead, which is about his own time in Siberia where he was and you know where he he had been committed because he was part of a revolutionary mob a revolutionary group that wanted to overthrow the czar and he spent 10 years in prison but there i think it's interesting to and the again the distinction between the kind of people arguing from a religious or faith or moral tradition that says the state should not have this power that's a cosmic right it's a they they see this as a kind of cosmic justice principle right only God has the power to take a, a human life away, whether through, you know. So that's one thing, but it's actually an, a total exploitation and reversal of that principle when you look at what the kind of uh, criminal justice, decarceration, abolish prisons folks are arguing. They're saying, in fact, they, they have that power. They have the power to look systematically over a society and say exactly what Raskolnikov was arguing to his comrades, which is that, you know, some lives are just worth more than others. Some lives can be, we, we can justify the elimination of some people to, to pursue a, a broader principle that's good for everyone. There's, there's a weird kind of both, it's cosmic collectivist and it's, and it, it is the, it's the polar opposite of what the moral, particularly the, the sort of Catholic moral reasoning is with regard to death penalty, which is the same reasoning that they use to, to understand their opposition to abortion. It's the same thing. That consistency doesn't exist on the secular side. Right. Okay. Let me just pull back and we're having a very stressful conversation. So it's time to talk about Headspace, your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy to use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Its approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads, Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offer right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Now, I, I, just to return to this question of the moral frame and the victim, um, all of these conversations fundamentally center on the idea that the population that is being imprisoned, incarcerated, with something like that, have some kind of extra grievance or reason for having been in this situation 
that is not taken account of in the way that they are treated in the criminal justice system. Uh, systemic racism, uh, you know, uh, uh, poverty. Uh, we now even have this idea that is uh, first popularized by Malcolm Gladwell and is now gaining increasing purchase. Alec Gibney just did a documentary on the woman who was uh, promoting this idea, the doctor, that, you know, most criminality is the result of head injury. Like young, when you're young, you have some kind of a concussive experience that re- that 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 ruins your impulse control center or interferes with the growth of your impulse control center in your in your brain and therefore leads to a, a lower a lowered moral sense or a lowered understanding of how to control your actions or something like that and obviously if that's the case then no criminal can really be held responsible for his or her actions because their brain isn't isn't sending the right signals about what to do when they're in a stressful situation or kind of confrontational situation or something like that. Um, and again, what we have here is a focus on the criminal and not on the population that is being uh, either preyed upon or, and I think this is the most important point, if you talk about how we need to defund the prisons that we need to get rid of prisons and all that, because Uh, there are too many black people in them or there are too many minorities in them. What you are effectively doing there is saying that uh, the defining quality or characteristic of a minority population is, is some kind of a direction toward criminality that needs to be mitigated because we don't treat minorities properly in this country. And that in turn says absolutely nothing about the overwhelming majority of African-American, Hispanic, a whoever it is, who do not commit crimes and who are more likely to be the victims of the criminal class that does them than anybody else is. Because it's not like these crimes are black on white or Hispanic on white or something like that. They are mostly black on black, Hispanic on Hispanic, whatever. And everybody, and so this focus on the criminal, again, like it, it defames the law abiding, it seems to me. And that's where I get into, that's where I want to talk a little about the politics of this. Because if this is where elite opinion is going, and not only is it going there, but there's now a kind of barrier against backtracking because it, th- these views are being adopted not only as fashionable, but as anti-racist, as, as, as you said, Christine. So therefore backing off and saying, I'm sorry, I can't go, I can't go with this. Like this is, you're, you're doing something terrible. <laughs> sort of like defunding the police, like enough, don't talk about defunding the police. What Democrats said on that famous phone call that, that we read about two days after the election, like you, you were killing me with the defunding the police stuff. Stop talking about it. It's not like they were saying, stop talking about it, not because it's bad politically. It's also like, stop talking about it because you're immoral and wrong and you are going to destroy this country by talking about it. They're saying this is, ooh, I mean, voters don't like it. But if they're right and this conversation hardens and deepens and the class of people who are talking about it have no way to back themselves off from the craziest opinions here, where is this going to lead our political conversation over the next couple of years? Well, it's going to lead anyone who's moderate or from a moderate district or who who is trying to uh, reform rather than abolish anything about the criminal justice system will be 
uh, branded a racist if they're on the left. Um, they already assume the Republicans are racist. And it will lead to either stagnation, in which case the void will be filled uh, not by legislators who are, who are required to moderate their views in order to strike compromises, but by the activist class, which we now know is, is just gotten a huge infusion of cash this summer through the Black Lives Matter movement, which then doles it out to all these smaller groups, although it's rather shadowy. It's a very shadowy financial network, which several good reporters have tried to sort of uh, uh, comb through. But it still comes down to you you then cannot have, and we already see this actually when it comes to uh, discussions of of, um, criminal behavior. You can't say that 50%, more than half of the murders in this country are committed by a very small minority population. Saying that fact, which is from the FBI crime statistics, brands you a racist. You're not even allowed to say that because I think already this idea that it's not the fault of the perp, you know, forget about the victim. It's not the fault of the perp that this is happening. It's society. So how do you fix that, right? How, if you're saying that there's a dispensation to people who commit violent crimes, then you're saying they don't have free will and that they're not acting of their own free will, that there's some systemic problem. How do you correct a systemic problem like that? In one sense, it could become quite dystopian. If you want to abolish the prisons, but you still have to track violent people, how do you suppose they're going to do that? They're going to put some, they're going to be some way to track. There still needs to be some way to control and track violent people, that very small percentage of the population that's extremely violent. It, it could in some ways become far more repressive than the system we have now. So it's not that it's just we'll abolish prisons and everyone will be like kumbaya hugging each other rather than murdering each other. I don't know. But that I mean, I have a pretty, pretty uh, cynical view of human nature, as you can tell. But I but how do you solve this problem that they spend a lot of time complaining about is, I guess, the question I have for the, the activist class. I, I am more um, they're kind of weird. There are all these weird portents in in what actual hard data we are collecting about the 2020 election, not polling data, which, as we know, was incredibly useless. But these precinct by precinct voting numbers and totals and things like that. And what we are seeing is this these green shoots of change, uh, you know, in the sort of Trump Republican direction among minorities, uh, you know, places that Biden won by 50 percent, just like Hillary did or so Hillary won by 60. Biden wins by 50. But in these places, the Republican vote jumps by 80 percent. Now, of course, if you have one vote and you jump by 80 percent, you get to 1.8 votes. It's not like, you know, it's not like that jump itself is you know, statistically, it's statistically measurable, but it doesn't get you anywhere near a majority. But the question is, are there things about the American conversation that have been going on? We know that the Trump conversation turned off suburbanites, right? Because that's where all of Biden's growth against in relation to Hillary came, was in the was in suburban counties and suburban places where Biden outperformed her sometimes by two to one and stuff like that. So we know about that conversation, but what is the story about these Hispanic neighborhoods, these black neighborhoods and places like that, minority neighborhoods where, where Trump did, you know, wildly better than he did in 2016, for example. Well, what, what's, what's the explanation for it? Crime and is up in some of those neighborhoods. Crime is up, <laughs> crime is up in considerably all of in those neighborhoods. neighborhoods. Crime is up in all of those neighborhoods. Every city, every major city in the United States is seeing a crime spike. It's not now again, it's often incredibly small base because we've had a, almost 30 years 
of a diminution of crime, which is one of the reasons that things like the death penalty stopped seeming so necessary. Um, the death penalty was wildly popular by 1996 because we had just started with the crime, the downturn in crime, really two years earlier, and people were still terrified and wanted criminals punished. Um, now it's like 25 years later, it's like, you know, many people in the United States don't have any experience of crime, whereas 40 years ago, every American had an experience of crime in some fashion or other. A car smashed into, a mugging, somebody they knew something terrible happened to, driving through a bad neighborhood, being like absolutely terrified while you were driving that your, you know, your car might, your battery might die, whatever, however you want to slice it. And so people really don't have that much experience of it anymore. But where there is experience of it, there was movement. And that wouldn't necessarily have been movement to Trump if the Democrats hadn't gone bananas on this subject. And I just don't know where this goes. Noah, as our as our resident uh, macroeconomic political 30,000 feet studier of data, I mean... You're getting a really interesting look from Noah right now. <laughs> yeah, no, but I'm just saying like, you know, you we've been, we've written these pieces about, and you've written these pieces about, you know, what the overall electoral consequences issues-wise might be. And so I don't know. I mean, I think Democrats are walking, could be walking themselves into even having gotten 81 million votes in the last election, they could be walking themselves into a cul-de-sac. Yeah, well, there's certainly the potential for backlash. And I think we probably did see a lot of that. I think rising crime rates as a theory of everything is possibly flawed um, in part because we saw a rejection of the kind of maximalist progressive prescriptions for economic and social reform in 2018 as well in the good times economy was for doing Democrat. really well. For, no, for, for that. Everyone. For, okay, yeah. No, it was just good times okay. for everybody. Um, these were the salad days of the Trump era and progressives ran and then we wrote about this in, in November, progressives ran in, in competitive races and competitive districts and competitive states in 2018. And of all the benchmark candidates, only one managed to win and didn't do especially well, as well as they thought they would. So the writing was on the wall for progressivism at the time. One of the things that I find really interesting as, a, as we begin to do retrospectives on the Trump era are these spasms that I think uh, cultural spasms that I think are attributable to the president just being a cultural figure. Um, Donald Trump's hostility towards women and disrespect for women, I think contributed mightily to the Me Too movement. Donald Trump's racial agitation, I think contributed mightily to the, uh, to the events over the last summer. Um, and I think that what the, the reaction that he fomented even if he was just sort of a, a, a intangible presence in that debate, um, created the conditions for uh, the people who hold radical views to perceive themselves to be, um, to perceive those views to be less radical and that the moment for them had arrived, or at least the urgency had become around those views had become more, uh, you know, more present. Um, and that has led them to move toward the fringes, more to the extremes in a way that doesn't represent the country broadly. So the president created a reality distortion field around just how legitimate and valuable and uh, welcome these expressions of social anxiety were 
among the activist class and they went too far and they created the conditions for a backlash. Right. And now the, but the question is, do, will, will, will the uh, political regulars who are, who want to win elections, will they be capable of having those conversations with inside their own party about what to do to stave off catastrophe? And as I say, I think there is a real problem with uh, the vocabulary that they will, that they will feel they are constrained from using to talk this through, to say, you guys have gone too far, shut the hell up before you destroy us. And uh, that's a issue of sort of psychological betterment. And so let me talk to you today about BetterHelp. Uh, the last sponsor today, is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online with a broad range of expertise available that may not be locally available in many areas. It's available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit BetterHelp.com, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for commentary listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash commentary. Um, So, I mean, we're not in the habit of offering advice to the Democratic Party and to liberals on how to make themselves more popular and not to not to be, you know, not to have electoral consequences for their stupid and bad ideas. I think we want them to have electoral consequences for their stupid and bad ideas. And Commentary all these podcasts to Democrats drop yeah. dead, right? <laughs> right. I was not, not to not to not to train them to have better ideas, but to make sure that their ideas don't don't you know get gain the upper hand in the United States. So, but Christine, we talked about this you and I yesterday. So why why should we care? Let them you know let them let them choke on this. Let the let the public you know, let the public rear in horror and, 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 and say, we don't want any more of this. Why, why should we still care? Well, so there are two reasons. There's the extremely uh, practical, immediate reason that this kind of thinking, if it is politically effective, does lead to uh, actual consequences in the real world for the most vulnerable populations, the ones who live in the neighborhoods where it's the highest crime rates, the people who have to get to work on public transportation and public transportation crime rates start spiking. That, so there are real world dangerous consequences for ordinary people if these ideas take hold. And we've already seen this with, you know, Andy McCarthy had that great piece for us last year about the progressive prosecutor projects. When, when crimes that are harmful to people are then not prosecuted either, you see there are real world consequences to having to allowing for greater range of criminal behavior in society. We know this. We know this from previous eras where crime was high. So there's that. But I think for, for the sort of chattering classes of which we are uh, a part, there's, there's another danger. And we've already seen how that's played out with the speech issues related to race on campuses and in the broader culture war. We lose a way of talking about criminal behavior, personal responsibility and agency if we start 
making everything a systemic problem, right? If everything's systemic, if we don't want to get into the specifics, but we want to talk about, you know, I'm depraved because I'm deprived, you know, if criminals are all given the the sort of the, the benefit of the doubt for why they did what they did, then I think we have a, it's very difficult to make a, a persuasive intellectual argument against that way of thinking. And that kind of worldview can infect people on the right side of the aisle as much as it can on the left. And that's dangerous. If there are certain things you're not allowed to talk about, certain facts you're not allowed to raise, uh, that makes the ability to come to any sort of reasonable reform or policy decision making that much harder. So I think what you're pointing out is that all wisdom can be located in Stephen Sondheim's lyrics for G. Officer Krupke. (laughs) Written in 1957, so I think I think there's 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 great merit to that. Everyone, go look up the lyrics to G. Officer Krupke, the greatest 11 o'clock song ever written. Um, since we began with Broadway, we can end with Broadway. Um, we'll be back no tomorrow for our last social disease. No one wants a fellow with a social disease. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll be back tomorrow with our final podcast of 2020, and we have many surprises. I don't know what they are because we haven't even talked about it, but we should come up with surprising. Yeah, does that mean I get to break out the bassoon finally? No, I'm just oh, kidding. <laughs> that's that's yes. not a That'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> I say I say variety show, variety show, cavalcade okay. of stars. Okay. We will be we will be, we will be this offline. <laughs> We'll be discussing. Don't don't get me started because you know Noah and I are both we're both stars of our high school Classic musicals and, and college. I did community theater in Arlington, Virginia, as late as as late as uh, my thirtieth. Uh, Abe is going to have to be the voice of reason and, and stop us from oh, <laughs> saving ourselves. Abe, no, we we will do G Officer Krupke with you accompanying <laughs> us on the bassoon. That that would be and and Abe by the way plays the piano. Abe, we could have a whole thing anyway. All right. So until tomorrow for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>